Welcome back to another episode of Trees and Lines. On this episode, we talked with Tom Sullivan, a leading professional in the vegetation management industry. Tom talked with us about the transmission side of the industry, IVM, the use of technology and AI in the field, and the right-of-way stewardship accreditation program. Have a listen. Hope you enjoy. Welcome, Tom. Appreciate your joining us for our Trees and Lines podcast. Uh, before we get started, uh, would you take a minute, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing lately? Okay. Uh, thank you, Phil. Yeah, my name is Tom Sullivan. Uh, background is a degree in forestry from the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Um, I did about 10 years of traditional forestry work. One of our clients in traditional forestry over the years was New England Power Company, and eventually um, I went to work for New England Power Company, and that, that company in time became National Grid. So I spent 20 years there doing traditional forestry on lands that the company owned. We owned about 50,000 acres of lands around hydro stations and did vegetation management on the transmission system. Uh, during that time. Uh, during my time there, we also acquired Niagara Mohawk in New York. So the system became pretty big. Uh, we got to where we had about 60,000 acres of right-of-way that we were managing. Um, I also got involved in project management uh, there. And when I left National Grid, I did project management for another eight years, um, you know, outside of vegetation management. Um, I also got involved in the right-of-way stewardship program, and for 10 years I've been one of the auditors on the, uh, associated with the right-of-way stewardship program. In fact, you're the lead auditor. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. <laughs> okay. Not long ago, saw a publication. I think it was from the Proceedings of the Right-of-Way, uh, Right-of-Way 13. It was on right-of-way management, uh, and I know that was something you were planned on writing for years. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, I've always been curious about the science, uh, both environmental science and even the economic science behind the programs that we run, uh, and specifically behind integrated vegetation management. Um, when I started at New England Power National Grid, you know, I sat down at a desk that had a book by Frank Egler and some Brambles and Burns papers right there, you know, on the shelf ready for me to grab and start reading. So, you know, I did that, and over my years at National Grid, I kept a kind of an informal file of papers as I saw them and as they may trickle in over the years, and also uh, sort of started a, a bibliography of what was out there. And over time, you know, I just felt like someday I want to take all this and polish it and expand it and publish it, and uh, right away 13 was a chance to do that. Um, I had the time to do it, and uh, it was something I, I wanted to tackle. Of course, I didn't tackle it alone. I had two co-authors involved in that study as well. Uh, Phil, you were one of them, and John Goodfellow was the other auditor. But, uh, you know, one of the primary reasons behind it was we spent 10 years really doing audits on a lot of utilities. And even in the last two years, I've been on 12 utility systems. And everybody talks IVM, but very few people can articulate a definition and clearly tell you what IVM is all about. Um, 
you know, that's just lack of communication within the industry, I guess. And it also speaks to the fact that, you know, there's no college curricula where you can take a course or two and specifically educate you about uh, integrated vegetation management. But, you know, what we saw in, in researching the research was it's an incredible story. I mean, it goes back 70 plus years. It goes back to the early 50s when people started talking about using herbicides as a tool to manage vegetation on right-of-ways, not to kill everything, but to encourage the growth of species that are compatible within the right-of-way. So over that 70 years, you know, a lot of research into every environmental issue that people kind of tossed at the programs. And over and over and over it was demonstrated that IVM and selective herbicide use was the best approach. Yeah, are there some issues with IVM? Sure. Are there some issues around herbicides? Sure there are. But overall, there's a lot of research that backs up the fact that this is the best approach. And as I said already, that it's a remarkable story that, you know, there's 70 years of research behind what we do. You uh, think that most of the people in our industry realize that, that it is a science-based uh, thing? <laughs> I think most people realize that there's science behind it. Whether people realize that there's as good a story behind it as there is, I don't know. Um, and most people, I don't think, really appreciate the fact that it's a system. You've know, got to be doing all parts of the system in order for it to truly be integrated vegetation management. I mean, the very word integrated, what does that mean? Bring a lot of disparate parts together and make them all work together. So um, if you're not doing the whole system, you're not doing integrated vegetation management. So it's, you know, I hope, I mean, we, in our abstract, we said this was meant to be a tool for practitioners. So how do we get it out there? How do we make it a tool that practitioners know it's a, that's available to them? And then how do we get them to read it and appreciate the work that went into, you know, that stands behind the programs that they run? Oh, you mentioned some old-time researchers, Burns and Bramble. And I actually got started. My first time on a right-of-way was with Burns and Bramble. So, uh, But a couple of years ago, met with a group that had never heard of him. And uh, that just shocked me because they were so important in my career. But time moves on and... Uh, that they were uh, great researchers from years past. They were. And, you know, the number of papers that those two gentlemen out of Penn State published is, you know, well in excess of 50 papers. It could be 60 or 70 papers. And then the people that followed them at Penn State continued the tradition there. The, the research sites are still out there. And there's been, you know, more publications come out of that research since Brambles and Burns have passed on. Uh, Carolyn Mahan at Penn State is the current sort of uh, leader of that effort at Penn State. So it's still going on. But Brambles and Burns isn't the whole picture. There's a lot of other work that's been done around the country. Um, if you, you know, Brambles and Burns for sure you can go back to as, you know, probably the, the most well-known, but as you just said, they were, they're not well-known to everyone. You said you were on a bunch of systems. Let's say you've been on like 10 utility systems over the last handful of years, and some folks have adopted IVM and, and many haven't, or at least don't have the complete understanding. Is there some relationship with 
those that do versus those that don't based on the urgency of the footprint that they live in. Meaning like, you know, the ones that don't are, are kind of time sensitively, you know, panicked because their system continues to get battered with a storm or a fire versus the ones that do have enough leadway, enough time to, to kind of perfect their footprints. Is that something that you've seen as a relationship or is it across the board varied? FAC 003, the new NERC requirements, pushed people to be more attentive to the vegetation on the right-of-ways. And some people responded with very heavy mechanical treatments through on their whole system. Mechanical meaning pretty much mowing, mowing and mowing and mowing. Get rid of everything, make sure that nothing encroaches into the into the security zones that are required by NERC. Um, but some responded, you know, with a more positive step forward that they understood that integrated vegetation management could get them where they need to be, and it would take, take some time to get there, and it may require a lot of mechanical work to start with, but they can gradually get to where uh, the vegetation that they're encouraging on the right-of-way is doing the job for them, as opposed to just having to do continuous mowing. I think some that have adopted it are in places where the social pressures and have been on them for longer periods of time. Um, you know, New York State was a leader in IVM, and that's partly because when they were using herbicides in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of pressure on them to stop using herbicides. So they did a lot of research to demonstrate that herbicides in IVM were a good approach. Um, so therefore, you know, to some degree, they were ahead of the curve because they were forced to by the regulatory pressures and environmental pressures, social pressures that were put upon them. Uh, New England has somewhat of the same story. Uh, the environmental issues here in New England were, were a little different in the, than they were in New York. The focus here was on what are we doing to wetlands when we're using herbicides. So we did a lot of research to demonstrate that, you know, the plant community that we could develop in wetlands was a better plant community than you would have if you just mowed. So it really is, to some degree, uh, a reaction to the pressures that you're under. And, of course, in different parts of the country, the pressures are very different. Uh, certainly, you know, fire. I mean, when I first got involved with the Edison Electric Institute uh, Vegetation Management Task Force and started going to meetings where I met practitioners from other parts of the country, it became apparent that fire was a huge issue in some parts of the country. And we all know that even better and better every year. And with the with the issue that just occurred, the fire that just occurred in Maui, we're even more acutely aware that uh, what vegetation can do in terms of creating fires. Uh, luckily, I live in a part of the country where fires are not much of an issue. And we never really had to think about yeah. that very much. Yeah. But some people just, they get into this because they have a natural curiosity about the plant community they're working in. I mean, I was re recently on a system where, yeah, the people running this, they're botanists and ecologists at heart. And they really wanted to understand what they're doing out there. And their own academic interests led them to IVM and they're doing a really good job with IVM. There seems to be this sort of thinking that most of the issues... Um, or outages are caused by trees from outside the right-of-way, right? Kind of the fallen tree. And so what would you say, like, 
Do you have a sense in the data how much of the issues across the U.S. are more a function of what's growing in the right-of-way versus trees that are affecting you know, outages that are falling in? Well, there is data. I mean, you could go research the NERC website and find the outages. Um, the last two major outages in North America, uh, 1996 and 2003, were necessarily started by trees, but they were made worse by trees, and those were growing outages from vegetation within the right-of-way. Um, those of us that had mature programs in 2003, we wondered why this was still going on, frankly. Um, I mean, my boss left me a souvenir from my former boss, that is, left me a souvenir when he retired, the last outage from a grow-in from underneath the New England electric system was in 1979. And the souvenir he gave me was a chunk of an aspen tree that caused it. And he made it very clear that he nearly lost his job because of that. And I should be aware that maybe I could lose my job because of that, too. So we <laughs> felt like there was really no excuse for a grow-in from underneath. And I think NERC finally woke up to the fact that, yeah, there should be no excuse for a growing from underneath or within the right-of-way. If you have a program and you stick to your program and fund your program, you shouldn't have growing outages from within the right-of-way. Off-right-of-way is a lot more complicated. You may not have the rights to touch those trees. But utilities certainly are more sensitive to off-right-of-way tree-caused outages. Everywhere I've been in the last two or three years, companies all have right-of-way edge tree programs that they may not have had 10, 15 years ago. So I think both people are managing both, and the systems I've been on, people are managing both well. So We should be specific, Tej, that uh, Tom is speaking transmission, the very high-voltage lines. Um, some of what you've heard is distribution. Distribution. Where almost exclusively it's tree fall in outages. Okay, that's a good. Yeah, thanks for that point. clarification, Phil. I, I automatically think yeah. transmission because that's mostly what I worked on all my years in the in the vegetation yeah. management business. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, you mentioned some of the reaction to the FERC uh, stuff that came out. I think it was two thousand five, and part of that motivated the development of the right of way steward accreditation program. And I know you've been instrumental in its development and operations since then. Can you tell us a little bit about why you got involved and tell us about the program? Why I got involved. Okay. Um, Right-of-way stewardship accreditation is exactly that. It's an accreditation against the standard that basically measures you really above what's required, above and beyond what is required in terms of just keeping trees out of wires. Um, There's more of a stewardship approach to it. And there's a lot of looking at, uh, are you complying with laws? Are you, are you operating in a sustainable manner socially? Meaning that the society at large is going to have inputs into your program. And if you can demonstrate that you're taking all that into account as you plan your program and carry it out, uh, your program is probably more sustainable. Um, right away stewardship came about really through an effort by the Electric Power Research Institute, EPRI. Um, there's, there's an accreditation system within the forest management community called Forest Stewardship. 
council, and they had a set of standards for how to be a sustainable forest management operation. And uh, EPRI looked at that standard and said, can we apply this to right-of-way vegetation management? And they had a contract with Chris Nowak at SUNY Environmental Science and Forestry to, to write a draft of how could you take Forest Stewardship Council principles and apply them to vegetation management on right-of-way. And that draft really kind of landed at the UAA. And for a few years, the UAA thought about, well, what could we do with this? And uh, there, there were those that really wanted to put, put it forward as an accreditation system. And uh, eventually, five of us got together. We call ourselves the Gang of Five, myself, Phil, John Goodfellow, Derek Van Ice, and Chris Nowak, and said, we got to make this go. Uh, we went out, raised some money, got it started, hired an administrative organization, environmental group called Dovetail Partners in Minnesota, to run it, basically to be the administrator. And we just put it out there. And within the first year, we had three utilities that sought accreditation and achieved accreditation. And it's grown gradually since then. It's really a show-me standard. Uh, it's, it's show me in the field that you're really doing what you say you're doing. Yeah, there, there are a lot of metrics and there's a lot of uh, documentation and paperwork that you have a program that's well-documented. But we go in the field, auditors go in the field, meet your staff, meet everyone, all from the president of the company down to the guy with a nozzle in his hand or a chainsaw in his hand, interview people and see that they understand the program they're implementing and see the results. That's why, you know, that's it's really a show me standard. Like I said, it's based on observations of good practices over time. And right now, I believe there are nine accredited utilities ranging in size from companies with a few hundred miles and a thousand or 2,000 acres of right-of-way to the largest, which is well over 150,000 acres of right-of-way. Given recent news, <clears throat> of course, all the fires, and not just Hawaii, but all over the world, you know, we've talked about this in past kind of sessions, Greece, Italy, Canada, you know, Australia, everywhere. Um, do you expect an acceleration of utilities to, to jump on board the, the stewardship uh, path because they're going to see this as the, the standard to, um, hey, like, you know, we've been experiencing all this risk. Things are continuously changing in our, you know, in our footprint, in our environment, and we need to, to kind of find a, a system and an approach. Do you think the Stewardship Council is that system, is that approach? Well, we're not really distribution oriented. Again, we're trans that program is transmission oriented. Um, and there aren't very many outages at this point being caused on the transmission system. Uh, where that goes, this goes on the distribution side, boy, I, I don't have a crystal ball to figure that one out. Um, we all know that there's been fires in California caused on distribution and transmission. And now we saw the recent fires in in Maui that were caused, it looks like they were probably primarily caused on the distribution system, but we won't know that for a while. I don't know if that'll be a driver for more people to seek right-of-way stewardship accreditation. Um, we do, w within the standard, If you as you check off the things you pass, 
to achieve accreditation, there are market claims a company can make by passing those criterion. And some of those relate to fire, some of those relate to reliability, some relate to environmental issues, et cetera, and your outreach programs. So we hope the companies will use those as selling points to show that they are, are on top of their programs and they do understand the impacts of their programs. But on the fire side, I don't know. I, that's, I, th- I think the, where I'm going with this is, I mean, you guys have been innovative and forward-thinking on the transmission side and establishing a standard, right? A standard that is a very elite sort of something that people can look at and aspire to. How difficult, and, and Tom, I know this is not necessarily your specific background of distribution, but how difficult do you think it would be to replicate this on the distribution side where there's a lot more conversation right now, like, but, yeah. but it's, it's so well done in bucket A. You don't think it's replicable in bucket B? I think it is replicable in bucket B. Um, the Stewardship Council actually had a conversation several years ago about writing a distribution standard because there are people on that stewardship council that are very much involved in urban forestry. And urban forestry, of course, is about trees along roads and also parks and other places in an urban environment. But a lot of it is about trees along roads, which is where most of distribution runs. So really, if you wanted to write a distribution standard, you'd be very much involved with the urban forestry community in the country. And there was an effort, and actually a draft standard was started, focused on distribution. But the council at the time felt like the transmission program was still somewhat immature, and that we should dedicate ourselves to, you know, buttressing that and growing that before we went on and addressed the distribution system. Yeah. A few years ago, I was at a Society of American Foresters meeting where someone gave a presentation about managing everything along corridors, you know, whether it was gas, electric, street side, uh, urban trees, it, that it should all be treated as one unit that we all need, to man, all need to manage. You know, all the different stakeholders, whether you're electric utility or whether the, you're the highway department, we need to be working on managing those corridors. And I agree. I mean, that's the direction this needs to go if we're going to manage these things well. And right-of-way stewardship for distribution could, could help lead the way in that direction. Hey, Tom, you've... Uh with this group of steward accredited uh, utilities, you're really seeing the people that are the thought leaders in many ways. You know, what are you seeing emerge at those utilities that point to the future? You know, what are we looking at down the road? Well, certainly, you know, since I got out of doing this day to day from National Grid. Uh, the information technology that's in people's hands in the field is remarkable compared to what it used to be. Uh, GIS, um, other applications that can be put right on your phone now. And everybody, every crew has got a cell phone. You can do plant identification off your cell phone. You could link that plant identification right back to your program, BMPs. Oh, yeah, this is such and such a species. Is that a species I leave or is that a species that I should be taking out? 
Um, all that kind of information that we used to put in books and throw in the pickup truck behind the seat and no one opened them can all be right there on your phone. So that's definitely happening now, and it's certainly a wonderful tool for the future. Uh, what AI can bring to the table or in, enhanced reality goggles, um, <laughs> I don't know. But there are people trying all that stuff right now. And and certainly when I'm in the field now, I'm seeing it, folks that are a generation younger than me. And I love the enthusiasm and love, love to meet that fresh young talent. Um, and they're bringing new ideas, new directions. You know, a lot of their people have educations that are more ecologically based than the traditional forestry curriculum. So I think they're going to bring new ideas and they're going to move us forward. But it is going to be more ecologically based and they'll have just terrific tools right at their fingertips in the field. Yeah. We're not all foresters anymore, are we, Tom? <laughs> no, there's more and more botanists and more and more people trained in ecology that are out there doing the work. Yeah. And that's all yeah. good. You have such an interesting perspective because I feel like you grew up with the traditionalists, but have had the ability to really open up your thought process to the modernization of what a forester today would look like, right? Which is sounds like it's a more fluid definition. Um, how, how do you plan on, like, are you going to continue to write, you know, content and produce, um, like kind of bring those two worlds together and see if you can formalize what a forester today would be truly defined as like, are you interested in continuing to be a sort of sort of a thought leader, whether it be at the university level or continuing with the council or even starting other initiatives? Because I feel like you, you have a very good transitional thought process as this industry finds new forms. So what's, what's, what's on the docket for Tom Sullivan? <laughs> uh, good question, Tej. Um, I would like to reach out to my own local university that graduates people with arboricultural degrees all the time, but they've never been introduced to utility work. So I think we all need to be doing that. I mean, there's been one effort through UAA to actually develop a curriculum. I think that was a terrific effort, and I'm glad it's out there. But I think all of us need to do this more. I mean, SUNY's got some background and some courses that relate to this kind of work. Uh, West Virginia does, uh, but very few universities touch this field at all. And I think all of us that have some background in this should be reaching out to our alma maters and say, hey, you know, this industry is hiring several hundred people a year, or maybe it's 500 people a year. We should talk about having a course or two that, kid, that young people can opt to at least learn something about this business. I mean, that's, that's a good thing that could be done. One, one of the things that happens in right-of-way steward, stewardship audits is that, I think, generational handoff. Um, it is an accreditation system. So when we go out as auditors, we're there to check the boxes. Are you doing the things that are required? But when you ask people what motivates them to do right-of-way stewardship accreditation, a lot of it is the opportunity to benchmark themselves and opportunity to measure themselves against others and against the standard and to have people like myself and the other, other auditors that have been doing this for two, three, four decades, come and visit them and give them insights uh, that they wouldn't have by just working alone. Yeah. 
And they really, and I mean, that's really one of the strongest feedbacks we get is that we made them think hard while we were there. And we made them think about new things. They're all smart and they're all going to do great things, but we made them think hard while we were there on their property. I'm fascinated in a way. They're the best programs in the country. And yet, Every one of them, you ask them, why did they seek right away steward accreditation? And every one of them says it's because they wanted to do better. Yeah, that's and right. They wanted the feedback that you were talking about. That just is uh, fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. As you said, they already are the best. But I guess they got there because they were always curious and they always wanted to do better. So that's what, that's what we yeah. want the standard to accomplish is to help people do better. Yeah. Are there... Are there, like, I know there's nine accredited utilities. Are there, do you have a list of utilities that are, you know, in serious consideration to pursue it? Like, can you give us some idea of where the, what the growth path looks like for this um, across the U.S. utility landscape? And is this also applicable to international utilities? It's only applicable internationally to Canada. So, you know, it is a North American based standard. It could expand beyond that at some point. Yeah, I get just Tej. <laughs> um, Sorry, I have my, yeah, I have my green two, card now. It's, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> there are two Canadian utilities that are accredited. You know, we don't know about people that are that are entertaining this idea of become accredited. We don't really know much about them or who they might be until they actually submit an application. However, people like myself and Phil. Uh, and others do have clients that they do other work with that encourage accreditation and may very well be working with companies right now. I mean, I know, I'll admit, I'm working with one right now trying to get them aligned to become accredited. We talked about nine utilities, but a lot of those utilities really have multiple operating companies. So one utility may be nine or 10 or 12 operating companies across 10 states. Uh, I think the impact of the footprint's a lot bigger. That is correct, Phil. And, and we can use names here. I mean, those that are accredited are publicly acknowledged. They're all listed on the website. I mean, First Energy is one of the largest, and they do go across. Is, is it five states, Phil, or maybe it's even into six? Uh, yeah, it might be six states, and it seemed to me yeah. they had uh, a lot of operating companies. They do, multiple operating companies. That were accredited. Yeah, and they're all accredited. You know, when you mention like yourself, Phil, John Goodfellow, like, you know, this is like the Hall of Fame of you know, <laughs> IBM vegetation management. Um, when you look down, when you look downfield, do you are you do you feel confident that there are kind of the next generation of, you know, Tom and Phil and John, like that's coming up, you know, in their careers that where the right of right of way stewardship will be in good hands and will be sort of taken to the next level. Like, is there a succession plan that's built into what you guys are doing, or are you guys going to rock this thing? And, you know, continue to, to, no, to we, lead the we charge. We think about that all the time. Um, you know, I'm involved okay. in a number of things in in my life as a professional, and right of way steward is just one of them. And I think about succession all the time in, in all those organizations. Um, there's a lot of terrific talent out there. There's a lot of people with the energy and the desire to make this march forward. I, I've no doubt in my mind about that at all. Yeah, the Hall of Fame is kind of a 
almost an embarrassing title, but uh, <laughs> if we're going to say Hall of Fame, we've got to add another person that we haven't talked about. Uh, when we did our research, I kept looking for who invented the term IVM. And the best I could get to, it's not definitive, but it was probably Kevin McLaughlin in the state of New York. He wrote a paper. Well, he's written many papers, but uh, Kevin McLaughlin is probably the person that uh, first coined the term integrated vegetation management, patterned off of integrated pest management back in the early 90s. So he, he should be in that Hall of Fame, oh, too, cool. as, as many others should be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We'll, yeah. We'll, we'll make I'll sure say that. Yeah. The right-of-way steward right now has a group I, younger than us. That's all I know. But uh, <laughs> the next generation is definitely taking over and leading, and it's really a good thing to see. Yeah, definitely. So, Tom, as you look down the road, you know, anything you want to leave the audience with? Any thoughts? or? Sure. I mean, the first thought would be get outside. Um, I mean, written plans and digital mapping and work management systems support the work, but You've got to get outside and see, see the work, see the results of the work, see the people that are doing the work, talk to the people that are doing the work. You know, all that feedback is essential. You've got to do that. Um, engage your stakeholders, uh, your neighbors, your agencies that regulate you. Tell them the IBM story. Get them to be on your side. You know, develop partnerships with property owners. I don't just mean private individual property owners, but state forests and national forests and nature conservancy properties develop partnerships with those people to demonstrate what you're doing and that demonstrates you're doing the right thing and then of course uh network 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 uh neighboring utilities uh national or north american uh, transmission forum great place to network and you know i did some work on a system last year that was very small very isolated and one of the things we recommended was Join the Utility Arborist Association. You don't have to spend $2,000 to go to a conference. It's $40 a year, and you can be reading contemporary articles, and you go to their website and find all kinds of stuff that's being published and now being posted on their website. So very short money for investment to bring information to you all the time. And, of course, keep your ANSI A300 Part 7 and your ISA BMP handy. Don't just buy it, put it on the shelf, but use it um, and work on whatever should be coming next in your program. And lastly, I would just say enjoy what you do. It's an interesting field. When I was first interviewed to get a job in this field, I was like, why would I want to do this? I like growing trees. But it's it's amazing what an interesting field it really is. Yeah. That's, uh, that's incredible. That's wisdom for the audience. I love it, Tom. That's great. Thank you very much. Um, this is great. Love chatting with you. Got to got to hear you in a little bit of a different forum. Uh, so this is really cool. Thank you for making the time. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks, My Tom. pleasure. Okay. My pleasure. Yeah. Awesome. That's it for this episode of Trees and Lines, brought to you by Iapetus Holdings. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. If you have any questions or comments on any of our episodes or ideas for topics or guests, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us at treesandlines at iapetusllc.com. We'll chat with you soon.